Over the past few months as a church, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. So in the Bible, there are four books that really hone in on the life of Jesus, the shortest of which is called Mark, Mark's Gospel. And uh, we're calling this series, Jesus, Con or King? Kind of asking this question, who is he? Should we believe what the Bible has to say about him, which is that he is the king? Or have we kind of been duped? by scripture? Have we been tricked? Have, have Christians throughout the ages made Jesus out to be more than what this book, the Bible, says that he is? Uh, so this morning we're in Mark chapter 8. We're actually going to finish Mark chapter 8. We're, we're, we're over the halfway mark now, uh, the halfway mark. See what I did there? Whew. Oh, it's going to be like that this morning. Is it fine? All right, I'll, I'll have to try a lot harder. Anyway, we're over halfway um, in our series this morning, and uh, we're going to um, be in this for a little while yet, but we're moving at a great pace. We're um, learning lots from this, and I hope that you find it helpful this morning. So Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, that's what I'm going to read. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, they'll be on the, uh, the words will be on the screen here behind me. So here we go, Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through to the end of the chapter. It says this, and he, that being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's also Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, some big stuff in here. So we're going to pray. We need God's help in this. I certainly need God's help in this as I take us through this. So let's just, let's just ask for that. God, we recognize that there are parts of the Bible that are tough. Tough to read, tough to come to terms with, things that we read once and go, whoa, whoa, that hits, that's, that's big, that's heavy. And God, we know that this morning we're, we're certainly in one of those texts, we're certainly in one of those parts of the Bible. And God, we want this every week, we want the help of the Holy Spirit every week as we go through uh, Scripture. Uh, so God, I ask for it again this morning, that you'd be helping me, that you'd be helping us uh, to know what's at stake here. And uh, God, that we would know more of you and know more of your love for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yeah, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, that, that's pretty strong, isn't it? If you've been with us through this series, it seems maybe a little bit out of character uh, with uh, the Jesus that we've been getting to know. He's, he's normally so chilled. He's normally so easy to be around. He's normally so friendly, so lovely, but then he has this, this pretty firm comment, really firm comment to Peter, one of his closest friends, one of the disciples, get behind me, Satan. Like, what is going on here? Like, I don't know, I don't know what kind of 
makes your blood boil. I don't know if Jesus that morning got stuck in traffic and there was just some road rage or if he was like a Toronto Maple Leafs fan and he finally just thought, I've had enough, and he just snaps because he's so frustrated. I don't know what's going on with him, right? Like, what is happening? This seems really out of character for him. Well, I'm going to ask you to be patient, particularly if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. You're used to being patient. And just stick with us because we're going to go through this. Sorry, this is the only year that I can gloat about the Ottawa Senators, all right? So I'm, I'm seizing every opportunity that I can uh, this season. Um, be patient with me as we go through this because we're going to answer that. We're going to look at that. Why is Jesus' comment to Peter so firm? Get behind me, Satan. My goodness, this seems so, so strong. Well, to get us going this week, I want to start kind of by picking up with where we left off last week. If you weren't with us last week, you can get on the church website and download that talk. But we kind of left at the end of last week with a look at something that is central, very central in Christianity, very central in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We are talking about the cross. We are talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. This, this thing, this, this place, this moment in history where if you were to remove it, you would pull the rug out from Christianity. You would, you, you, you would remove the very essence of what makes Christianity unique, and and even indeed what makes Jesus Christ unique himself. The cross is central to understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. It's central for that. It's central for understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. The cross and the empty grave that followed, and of course we, we remember that whether you're here as a Christian this morning or not, even in our culture, even culturally we remember Easter every year, you know, Good Friday, Jesus going to the cross, and it's, it's called good because it should have been us up there. Why would we call this, this horrific event good? It's because it should have been us that was up there. But then Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday as well. We remember it even in our culture every year. Uh, but even in the life of, of, of churches, it would be easy to think that the cross isn't actually that central, apart from Easter maybe. You know, maybe there's one time of the year where it really gets highlighted but that's not the case here. It's not the case in some other churches as well, where the cross is seen as this central, central thing, this central moment, this central point in history, Jesus on the cross, that we have to keep coming back to. Now, not only is the cross helpful in our understanding of what is at the very center of Christianity and the person and the work of Jesus, but it's also the place that we should start when we're considering Christianity. Now, there's some uh, that are likely here with us this morning that are going, yeah, it's It's nice being here. It's nice coming and getting a free cup of coffee and maybe checking out the lunch later. But in terms of Jesus, in terms of faith in Jesus and a relationship with Jesus, yeah, I don't don't know. Because I've heard that Christians believe this about, I mean, I could reel off any list of things right now, about relationships or about sexuality or about um, the way that men and women work together in the church or or whatever other examples I might be able to give. And you might be thinking, well, if if I give my life to Jesus then I'm going to have to lay down some of this stuff. I'm going to have to change the way I think, and I don't know if I want to change the way that I think. And last week we looked at a quote from a pastor in New York named Tim Keller who helpfully summarizes the, the importance of looking at the cross of Jesus first. He summarizes it like this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, so going to the cross and rising from the dead, then we have to accept all that he said. We just have to. If it's true that Jesus went to the cross and died in our place and was raised to life, 
we have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And of course, he would have only been able to rise from the dead if he was put to death. And obviously, you see why the cross is central in that. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we last week talked about how if Jesus is still dead, somewhere in a tomb, somewhere in the Middle East, if he never went to the cross and died, and if he was never raised to life, then you this morning... You're, you're essentially at nothing more than a, a, you know, a community group or a social club. And that's nice. That's pleasant. But let's not call it church. If Jesus is dead, let's not waste our time calling this church. Because it's not. There's no point. But if he's alive, it changes everything. If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. So that quote and those verses are particularly relevant if you're here and you're considering uh, Christianity, or at least I hope that you find it relevant, if you're wondering what Christianity is all about and whether it's something you could enter into yourself. But what about for the Christians in the room? You're at a church this morning, Grace City Church. It's no surprise that many in this room would say that they are Christians, that they love Jesus Christ. What about for you? How, how is the cross relevant for you? Is the cross and the resurrection, the empty grave, is this just our starting point in examining Christianity, is that just where we begin? Do we begin at the cross and the resurrection and then kind of graduate on to, to greater things and to kind of, you know, the cross and resurrection is Christianity kind of 1.0 or Christianity 101, and then we graduate on to the advanced classes? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, absolutely not. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, a clear reference to the cross, Jesus going to the cross in our place, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, here's the point. Yes, in examining Christianity, the cross should be our starting place, but it is also the foundation upon which we build our entire lives. We don't move beyond the cross. We don't move beyond it to advance knowledge or to something greater than the cross. It's our starting place, and it's the place that we come back to every time. It's the place that we look to for fresh mercy, grace, life, joy, peace. The cross is our assurance today and tomorrow and every day that we have a God who is completely and utterly for us. So friends in the room who are Christians, don't think that it's only your starting place and that everything I'm saying about the cross is only relevant to people that are just examining Christianity. It's relevant to all of us, every single one of us. And there could never be a crossless Jesus. If you remove the cross from Jesus, you're not left with the Jesus Christ that the Bible talks about. You might be left with a great man, a really impressive man like we were talking about last week, but you're certainly not left with a Messiah. You're not left with a true Savior. You're not left with the true Son of God. There could never be a crossless Jesus, and because of this, there should never be a crossless Christian. But how people try sometimes. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been in Christian culture for a time, you may have noticed... Uh, that, that in certain circles, the cross has come under attack. Uh, there, are, there are those that, 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 as I said, maybe make a big deal about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, you know, when everybody's kind of paying attention to it, and you can go into the card store in the Rideau Center and see lots of lovely Easter cards that, that read, you know, some of them even have Bible verses 
printed in them, right? Like really, really great stuff once a year, but through the rest of the year, there's talk about lots of other things, and the cross and the empty grave don't seem to be quite enough. And we can see other things starting to slip into the very center of Christianity. So I would say that there actually is a fight for what would be kind of called, you know, the theology or doctrine of the cross. Now, the fight may have been missed by many because it's quite subtle. You don't usually hear people arguing about this. It's kind of been a gradual slip away, and other things, even good things, have kind of moved into, in some circles, into the center of Christianity. And again, I stress good things. So things like social justice, things like serving the poor, things like um, wanting to protect the rights of the unborn. These would all be things that we as a church would believe in with all of our hearts. But we can see in some areas of Christianity that these things seem to come in the middle and are seen as the central thing. Now, these things are all good things. They're things that we believe in and that we want to advocate for. But there is something greater than all of these things. There is something that is even more central to Christianity than all of these things. Something that we should give ourselves for even more than all of these things. And that is simply this, the cross of Jesus Christ. And our understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Here's why. It's because at the cross, God showed his heart for justice. If we feel passionate about social justice, as we should be, it's at the cross that God showed his heart for justice. Justice that you and I deserved for all of the ways that we declare ourselves as God. For all of the, we, the ways that we live our lives saying, God, we know better than you. There's a price to be paid for that. There's justice that should be given to us. And at the cross, God showed his heart for justice, but it's justice that went on to Jesus. Jesus paid the price for us. So because of that, knowing that, knowing God's heart for justice, we should be serious about justice in our culture as well and be advocates for social justice. At the cross, God showed his heart for the spiritually poor. Friends, that's you and me, the spiritually bankrupt Our debt to God was so great that there was nothing in ourselves that we could do to repay it. We were completely and utterly spiritually poor, spiritually broke, spiritually bankrupt. But at the cross, God showed his heart for we who were spiritually poor. So the poor in our city, we should have a tremendous heart for them because as we serve them, we show them something of the heart of God towards us and them ultimately revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ. What about the value of human life? Well, it's at the cross that God showed the value of human life. We in ourselves would have been left to our own devices to die, to be separated for all of eternity from God, just to be left on our own. God gave us fair warning of the consequences of all of the ways that we offend him and all of the ways that we declare ourselves as God and say that we know better. But out of love and out of uh, the sanctity of life and a high view of, of, of life that God has created, men and women made in his image, God made a way in sending Jesus to the cross to save our lives that were veering at, a, at, at, a, at, a, at the speed of sound towards death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Jesus steps in as part of God's plan. And God clearly shows how much he values life, including yours, including mine. It's at the cross where we see this. 
Crossless Christianity is not Christianity at all. The cross is why we believe all these things. The cross is why we need to understand all of these other good things that I've listed off, and we could add to that list. We need to understand them as things that flow from the cross and seeing the cross as what comes first and the cross of Jesus as what is central. Now, that's a lot of preamble, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, okay, when are we getting to actually the verses that you read, Rich? It's with this understanding of the centrality of the cross, of the centrality of the death of Jesus, and three days later, the empty tomb, that we need to see that it was the cross, it was the death of Jesus, and Jesus being to raise to life that was at stake when Jesus rebukes Peter. That's really key. We need to see that that is what was at stake. Now, these are hard verses to read. I mean, poor Peter, right? Poor Peter. If you've been with us through this series, you've gotten to know this story. You know, Jesus calling Peter to follow him and these other disciples to follow him. And they lay, they lay everything down. They lay their profession, some of them as fishermen. Others work in finance and tax collectors, these things. They lay it all down. They follow Jesus. You know, they, they do what they're supposed to do. And they go around and they're with Jesus through some pretty tough things and they're learning and they're growing and all of it and they're with Jesus one of Jesus you know these they're Jesus's best friends Peter being one of Jesus's best friends himself and then Jesus as we read in these verses in in chapter 8 verse 31 Jesus starts to talk for the first time about how he needs to suffer and to be put to death to die and how he would be raised to life. And Peter, as, as such a close friend of Jesus, just can't take it. He just can't take it. So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. Jesus, you can't talk about this. Don't talk about this. This isn't cool. Don't talk about this. So when Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, we can go, whoa, Jesus, hey, chill out. This is your friend. He's showing compassion towards you. Nobody in this room would be thrilled to hear about a, a, a friend who there was this plan for, for them to suffer and to die. None of us would be delighted to hear that. It makes sense that Peter wouldn't be delighted to hear that. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus returns Peter's rebuke with a rebuke of his own in very, very firm words. Why is this even happening? Well, we know from Mark's gospel... And remember, Mark's gospel is actually Peter's story. Mark is kind of the scribe. He's the one who's writing it down. But this is actually Peter's story, that Jesus knows what's actually happening in Mark's heart. He knows what's happening in his heart. These verses say it. Jesus discerns what's happening in his heart. And that's part of Jesus' reply to Peter. He recognizes that, that Peter's mind is set on the things of man and not on the things of God. Now, what's being spoken about here? Peter has his heart set on the things of man and not on the things of God. What's happening is that Peter has dropped from this amazing insight that we looked at last week where Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. This huge statement. But only moments later, Peter has dropped from that to essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to tell you what kind of Messiah I want you to be. That's what's happening in Peter's heart. It comes out, and we hear it as something that sounds like it's compassionate. It's actually arrogance. It's actually selfishness. It's actually pride. Remember, Peter 
and the Jews at that time had been waiting for this promised Messiah. The word Messiah kind of had these military connotations to it. They were waiting for a Savior. Why were they waiting for a Savior? Because they were under Rome's thumb. That area was being ruled by Rome and kind of this puppet king that had been put in place. And the Jews at the time, they hated it. They longed for their freedom. They longed for their independence. They longed to be able to be who they wanted to be, the people of God, called by God. They longed to be that, but they were under this oppressive regime that was kind of uh, exercising its force over them. So for Peter, he's clocked it. He's worked it out. Remember, we looked last week. Peter has figured out, no, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one that has come to save us. So he's, he's elated. Oh, my goodness, he's here. The Messiah is here. And then what does the Messiah say? That he has to suffer and die. And Peter just can't take it because the Messiah that Peter wants does not suffer and die. The Messiah that Peter wants comes in with muscle and with strength and with might and just obliterates the Roman rulers. That's the Messiah that Peter wants. So Peter rebukes Jesus saying, no, 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 that's not the plan. The plan is not for you to suffer and die. Let me tell you what the plan is. And it's the cross that is at stake. Friends, we need to understand this to understand why Jesus' reply is so firm. It's the cross that was at stake. There can't be a crossless Jesus. If Jesus had just kind of gone, oh, all right, all right, just don't, Peter, don't worry about it. Let's just all chill out. Let's just all calm down a little bit. Let's not talk about it. Peter would have been left with the impression that it was not necessary for Jesus to die. It would have been tragic. It would have been absolutely tragic because Peter would not have known about God's plan for salvation involving Jesus being put to death in his place and in mine and in yours. So Jesus' response is entirely appropriate. Matthew Henry, a Welsh minister in the 17th century, he says this. He says, The wisdom of man is perfect folly when it pretends to give measures to divine counsels. Let me translate that for you. Only a fool tries to be God to God. That's what he's saying. Now, we can be quick to pick on Peter here, can't we? Oh, Peter, don't go in and tell Jesus what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior he should be. But you know what? Oh, man, I do this in my own life. And if you're here and you're a Christian, so do you. We have times in our lives where we tell Jesus what kind of Savior we want him to be. We have times in our own lives where we say, Jesus, there's this thing that I want or this thing that I need or there's this plan that I have for you. Jesus, will you pray to invite me into your, into your heart? You know, will you make me the center of your life? We just so reverse what the gospel is. We so reverse God's plan for salvation. We position ourselves in the middle of it and we say, Jesus, there's this thing that, that I want from you. There's this way that I want to be saved by you. And let me tell you exactly what that's going to look like. And I'm, 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 for the sake of the point, my language is more abrupt. But we can, we can code it with really holy language. You know, oh God, I, I, just, I just really feel like this is something that you want from me, even though it doesn't fit within the boundaries of Scripture. God's heart for us, God's love for us, because he wants good for us. So Jesus, let, let me, look, I, I, know, I know I read this. But let me tell you what I think is actually better. And if you could just get in line with that, I'd really, Jesus, that'd be really great. I'd be, I'd be really grateful. Friends, we can all do this, myself included. I am not pointing the finger. We can all do this. We all have times in our life where we say, Jesus, let me tell you what kind of Messiah, let me tell you what kind of Savior I want you to be. 
But friends, Jesus will not take marching orders from us. He's for you, he loves you, he's kind and he gracious, he's gracious, but he will not take orders from you. He is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords. He is completely committed to his Father's will, his Father's perfect will. And he is entirely about doing what he sees the Father doing, not what he sees you doing and me doing. And praise God for it, because he'd be a lousy savior if he decided to get behind everything that I'm doing. He would not be worthy of worship, and if he decided to get behind everything that you were doing. Now, after rebuking Peter, Jesus then goes on to tell his disciples and the crowd around him the cost about following Jesus as well. Now, I want to read these words from Jesus exactly as they appear in the Bible. This is starting halfway through verse 44 of chapter 8. Jesus says this, If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels." Friends, heed this warning. Please, heed this warning. There is a cost to following Jesus. Don't be tricked into thinking that surrendering your life to Jesus means that everybody in your family, everybody in your friendship circles will suddenly just fall madly in love with you. Some might, but many won't. Jesus says this. It will be costly. Don't be tricked into thinking that if you buy into the self-help self-healing, self-saving culture that exists all around us. Go to any bookstore in town. Get on to the most popular blogs online. So much of it puts us at the center. The answer for every problem in life, they say, is is within us. Just search yourself. Search yourself. The answer is in you. The answer is in you. Don't be tricked into thinking that if you do that long enough that you will actually save yourself. Jesus says you need to deny yourself. You need to recognize that the answer is not found within you, but it's found in him. And the more that you do all this self-examination, and if I just try hard enough, and if I read the right things, enough stuff that's telling me that I just need to find the answer within me, and it's all about me, it's all about me, 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 the more you're going to keep coming back to the problem, and that is your own heart, our own hearts. Where Jesus is saying, I am the answer, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, deny yourself. And come and follow me and I will give you a new heart. I will take that heart that is sick and dysfunctional and not working properly. But look, we, we've been going through Mark chapter 1 through 8 so far and we've read all these stories about Jesus healing people. The point of all the stories, which are true stories, is for us to recognize that we're sick as well. We might not be lame lying on a stretcher and Jesus comes in and heals us the same way, although there may be some here who do have physical things that they want healing for, and we want to pray for you after the service. But it's not for us to disconnect thinking, oh, those are just stories of physical healing that don't have relevance to us, even though they're true stories. It's for us to go, man, I'm sick too. I'm sick too. My heart is sick as well. And Jesus, as the healer, comes and gives us a new heart. But it has to come from a place of us denying ourselves. The answer is not found within ourselves. It's not found within us. Deny yourself and let Jesus save you. Jesus says, whoever would lose his life for my sake 
would find it. Oh, man. <laughs> like, again, we, we were praying before the service this morning, and I, I just, I, every once in a while, it just dawns on me how great of a venue we have here. Like, we are on one of the main drags in Brighton. Sorry, in Brighton. I've moved. Sorry. <laughs> moved a year and a half ago. <laughs> it's like when rock stars show up in Ottawa and go, Hello, Toronto! <laughs> and it's just awkward, okay? I live in Ottawa. I know that, all right? We are one of the main drags here in Ottawa, all right? And we've got these beautiful floor-to-ceiling windows. And people walk by and they look up and they're curious. You know there are parts of the world where you could just not do this? Where if you were doing this, you would be putting your life at grave risk. What a privilege we have here. Not a right. Not a right. A privilege we have here that we can do this each week. So when we hear those words, whoever would lose his life for my sake, we go, man, we, we, don't, know, we don't quite know what box to put that in. <laughs> That's hard for us because the idea of persecution, of of being persecuted for our faith, for us here in Canada, and look, praise God for this, I mean it, but man, it's so different for us than it is for people in many other parts of the world. But still, for us here, Christians in the room here, we can't ignore this. We can't just think that these are for people that live in parts of the world where Christianity is not uh, the, the, the predominant faith. And people are persecuted for this. Well, this is relevant for them, but not really for us. No, it is. There are still ways that we should be losing our lives for Jesus. I hope and I pray that no one in this room actually loses their their own life for Jesus. Of course, I don't wish that on anyone. But there are still ways that we can lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. Even here in comfortable Ottawa. And in doing so, knowing that we gain absolutely everything. And then, my goodness, these words are the most poignant um, what Jesus says at the, at the very end of Mark chapter 8. What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, listen to this, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are churches you can go to that at this point would try to sugarcoat that, that would try to explain away, explain it away with a whole bunch of fancy scriptural gymnastics. Well, in the culture, what was going on was this, and in the Greek it says this, and Jesus, when he said it in Aramaic, well, this is really what he really meant. You know what? No. Just no. We need to take what Jesus said here as truth. If we do not deny ourselves, we are essentially saying that we do not believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We're saying that we are. And if we're saying that we are Lord and Savior, we're saying that who Jesus is and the work that he did on the cross, that is, means nothing for us. That we're, we don't need it. Maybe even there's a sense of shame or embarrassment about it. I don't need the cross. That's just weird. It's gory, the language of it. I can't talk to my friends about that. It's just, no, no, no. There can be a sense of shame about it. Denying the work of Jesus and denying who Jesus is himself. Jesus clearly says, whoever is ashamed of me, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And if I, this is most relevant for those that have been in the church for a while and that I know personally, guys, I, I love you guys. I love you dearly. And if I said anything less than this or tried to explain this away, I would be causing you great, great harm great harm. We need to take these words seriously. Guys, I know this is really heavy, but let's end with this. Let this encourage you. It's not too late. 
It's not too late. We need to remember whose story Mark is writing down. It's Peter's. It's Peter's version of his experience with Jesus. It's the same Peter who heard Jesus say all of these things, who heard this warning from Jesus, and then went on to do what? The night that Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? Denied Jesus once, nope, twice, nope, three times. Three times Peter denies Jesus on the night that he's arrested. Peter went on to do the very things that Jesus warned him and the disciples and us about. But Peter repented. He had time. He met with the risen Christ. And he went, no, it's true. My goodness, it's true. Jesus, I'm sorry. And Jesus came, even after his resurrection, and had breakfast with Peter and hung out with him. And stayed true to his word that that the early church would be built on the ministry of Peter and the other apostles. What amazing, amazing grace. A pastor in uh, the UK, Phil Moore, he summarizes it like this. He says, Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter walked on water. But Mark doesn't. Remember, Mark is recording Peter's version of the story. Matthew tells us that Peter walked on water, but Mark doesn't. Matthew tells us that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But Mark doesn't. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed for Peter that he would be strengthened, that he would strengthen the other disciples, rather, after his crucifixion, but Mark doesn't. John tells us that Jesus reinstates Peter as the leading disciple after his denials, but Mark doesn't. Why? Peter refused to boast when he preached about Jesus because he didn't want us to be wowed by his successes. He was brutally honest about his own failures because he wanted to encourage us that we are just as able to step into Jesus' story as he was. Peter was very aware of the grace of God on his life. And even as as, uh, heavy as Jesus' warning is and the way that we're speaking about it this morning, you need to know Jesus has grace for you. If you've had those moments where you felt ashamed of Jesus or the cross, where you've denied him, Jesus has grace for you. He had grace for Peter. He has grace for you. Have you tried to save yourself? So did Peter. Have you tried to tell Jesus what to do, how he should be your Savior, how he should be your Messiah? So did Peter. So did Peter. Have you ever felt ashamed of Jesus, denying him even? So did Peter. Three times. So did Peter. But listen to what Peter himself writes much later in his life much later in his life, and these are Peter's words himself in 1 Peter 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. What a remarkable transformation Peter has had. This Peter who rebukes Jesus for talking about the cross and the resurrection. No, 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 Jesus, don't talk about that. That's not the type of Messiah that I want you to be. Has gone through a remarkable transformation where towards the end of his life in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter sees the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as the reason for all living hope. What a remarkable transformation Peter has gone through. And no matter what your experience has been in your journey of faith so far, even denying Jesus, even being ashamed of Jesus, you can have the same transformation of receiving by faith who Jesus is and the work of Jesus and saying, no, the cross is the place of my hope. The empty tomb is the place of my hope. The person of Jesus is the one, the purpose 
the, the, the very center of my hope. Without him, there is no hope. But because I have him, I have everything.